Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi. Joined uh, this week by Taipei Times features writer Han Chung. Han, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here again. And of course, we have Han back on as we do each month uh, to bring us more bits of Taiwan history from his column, Taiwan in Time. Uh, just to recap for listeners that are new to this segment, although you shouldn't be because we've been doing it for a number of months now, Taiwan in Time is his weekly column uh, that brings to the four Taiwan historical events. Uh, comes out on Sunday, so he covers one event that came out during the following calendar week. Uh, this month, we're going to be recapping Han's articles from the month of September. So we've got four stories that all occurred during some September in Taiwan, way back when. Well, actually this month, none of them are too far back. We're dealing with relatively recent history. But before we get to any of that, we got some music to play. All right, so just to explain what we're doing here, uh, we had such a good time last month playing the musical stylings of Ye Chun-lin, uh, who is a Taiwanese writer from the mid-century who wrote a number of Taiwanese pop hits. Uh, had a good time playing his stuff, so we thought we would make this a regular thing on this show. Uh, and this month, we've got another historical Taiwanese musician uh, who we're going to be playing a number of songs from him as well. Uh, Han, how about you introduce us to the guy who is playing behind us right now? This month, we're hearing music from Hou Dejin. Um, he was born uh, just a little bit after September. He was born on uh, October 1st, 1956. But So we're... we're Fudging the September tie-in, but that's okay. Yeah, so he wrote a couple of pretty popular songs um, in both Mandarin and Taiwanese uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Mm. But uh, what's really interesting about this guy is like he actually illegally went to China in, in 1983 and then um, continued his career there. And then he ended up being like one of the key figures of the Tiananmen Square protests. Mm. Um, he was part of like the Sijuns, like the four dissidents who went on a hunger strike to protest uh, all that was going on. And then he ended up being deported back to Taiwan. Eventually. Eventually. And then he uh, ended up in uh, moved to New Zealand. Mm. So his musical career in Taiwan was pretty brief. But um, these songs are pretty... Um, they're pretty memorable. Most people would know them. Mm. Yeah. So this is a guy that's not just a musician, but was uh, really involved in uh, history, like real historical events. I mean, you could have written an article about this guy. Yeah, I could have, but uh, I couldn't find a photo of him. <laughs> Didn't pass that test. All right, so uh, what is the song that we're listening to right now? Um, that one is a Taiwanese song. It's Ju Gamatamwe Bo. It's... Uh, it was uh, the theme song of a pretty popular movie called Da Chuo Chuo mm. in back in the 80s. All right. So we're going to let that song run for just a little bit and take us into our first story for the day.
All right, we're going to roll right into your first article for the month of September. Uh, this is for the week of September 5th to September 11th. Uh, and in this case, we are talking about a prestigious jurist uh, who has the distinction of being uh, Taiwan's first female grand justice. Uh, and the uh, historical tie-in here is on September 5th, 1973, uh, a U.S.-based a group called World Peace Through Law Center uh, recognized her kind of for uh, her lifetime achievement uh, in this role. So let's start before 1973, though. She kind of had a storied rise, uh, interesting backstory. So let's just start with uh, where it all began for this individual uh, by the name of Chang Jinlan. So Zhang Jinlan, um, her, she started her law career in, um, in China, actually. She was the only female in her graduating class in uh, Northwest University in Xi'an. And then uh, she worked as a judge for a while, and then you know, the Chinese Civil War broke out, and uh, she came to Taiwan with the nationalists. And right after she arrived in Taiwan, she started breaking a lot of gender barriers, like from the beginning, like... Um, in 1948, she was Taiwan's first female presiding judge of an appellate court at the Taiwan High Court's Tainan Branch Court. And it, by 1956, she was already like a judge in the Supreme Court. And um, later, um, she was there. After 10 years of serving in the Supreme Court, she was named as one of the 15 Grand Justices of the Constitutional Court, uh, where they interpret the constitution and national laws and you know they have the power to impeach the president and like um basically they they would do the research and uh, make sure like this was according to the constitution or to the law it's a wielding real power mm-hmm. uh okay so definitely uh, breaking down a lot of gender barriers there uh just like you said uh so what was uh, what was going on in 1973 what was this group that recognized her um, it's the World Jurist Association, which was then called the World Peace Through Law Center. Um, mm. Yeah, they presented her with the Pax Orbis Ex Juror Award during its conference. Something super Latin-y. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, and that kind of kind of recognized, like, capped off her career um, as, like, this barrier-breaking judge. And, um, yeah, and she would... Um, yeah, she would die like two years later. So uh, yeah. that was kind of like a fitting kind of send-off. Mm. Right. Uh, yeah, she died reasonably young. I think she was uh, 57 when she passed away from cancer. Uh, but kind of interestingly, uh, you point out in your article that there's really just not that much written about her. Yeah, yeah, there really isn't. And um, this kind of came from, we were trying to put more women into the column. and But looking at history, there really aren't that many Mm-hmm. And that were really interesting. And if they were, they often weren't written about. Mm-hmm. And including this uh, Zhang Jinglan. I found her name online and then I found the anniversary. So I was like, yeah, let's write about her. Um, but yeah, there was really not much. There was no books. Um, there was just a little blurb on the Ministry, ministry of Interior Grand Justice page about her. And it was like three sentences and a picture. Mm. So I really had to dig to mm. find. Like I went to the library and there was this like really old book called like Woman Who Challenged the Times and she mm. had like a little article in there. And surprisingly there there was a 
the Los Angeles Times interviewed her mm. um, in 1972, mm-hmm. and I found that article. So I got a lot of the – actually, I got a lot of information from a U.S. source rather mm. than a Taiwanese source. You know, it's, it's, it is interesting because uh, I actually have – I've done a couple of interviews with uh, women's rights activists in Taiwan, and one thing that has been said to me more than once is that foreign journalists seem to be more interested in this issue than Taiwanese journalists. Uh, and even they weren't quite sure why that was, but it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. Now, uh, her career actually began uh, in China. She fled to Taiwan with uh, many uh, during you know, the end of the Chinese Civil War. Um, but she kind of got a reputation for being fearless. I mean, she was uh, a, a, a female judge, which uh, was extremely uncommon at the time, uh, and she did not back down from some trials that could have been pretty dangerous for her. Yeah, no, she did not. Um, I've, this was uh, this example was detailed in the Woman Who Challenged the Times book. Um, she was pretty lenient to people who had like extenuating circumstances, but for those who like um, had solid evidence of their crime, she would just like have them executed, and she often presided over the execution. And there was one case where uh, there was a kidnapping case, and it involved like a criminal, like a really notorious criminal, and no judge would was no judge uh, would dare touch the case, and she took it on. And they they wouldn't touch it because they were afraid of like mob reprisals. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and she did get threatened from the criminals' associates like repeatedly, but mm. she still like sends him to death, and she presided over the execution. And this is where we get this phrase: uh, "A tiger not afraid of jackals." Yeah, yeah, because that's what uh, Lu Shenfang writes in the book um mm-hmm. they had no idea that even though she was a young woman she was a true <laughs> tiger who was not afraid of jackals it's a great characterization mm-hmm. uh would that we could all uh warrant such high praise mm-hmm. uh so yeah she 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 goes on to a fairly uh illustrious career a, a quite a fearless uh, career uh and then another interesting thing is you know we might think she must have uh faced so many challenges because of her gender, so much stereotyping or glass ceilings or, or, or however we might put it. Uh, but she said, and maybe she was just putting a brave face on, but she said in interviews that, uh, no, she really didn't face much of anything. Yeah, yeah. She actually, yeah, because the Los Angeles Times reporter asked her about discrimination and she mm-hmm. said, um, quote, I've had complete respect from men, even when I started at the age of 23. If I had any problems, I wouldn't have kept at it for 30 years. Mm. So, um, I'm, I mean, being like a, the only woman in the field, like the, there must be a lot of struggle. But So we don't know if she's just putting on like a brave <laughs> face or, um, or really she was that strong of a character that... Yeah. Yeah. Hard to say. Now, uh, one thing that you do point out in your article is that uh, as, you know, one of the top judges in Taiwan, she manages to predate uh, the U.S., uh, breaking that gender barrier with Sandra Day O'Connor in the 1980s by a number of years. And then maybe uh, just bringing this story up to uh, the politics of this year, of course, uh, Taiwan has broken another barrier this year with the election of Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, also, once again, beating the U.S. to the punch, breaking that gender barrier. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it's sort of hard to put your finger on exactly uh, how 
Taiwanese culture treats women in power as opposed to, you know, countries in other parts of the world, in the Western world, or even in other Asian countries. Because uh, uh, on the one hand, I, I think a, a lot of critics of uh, Taiwan's culture would say that uh, the women are uh, often, you know, certain societal expectations are placed upon them. They, they face a lot of pressure, especially in terms of marriage. But then uh, in some other ways, uh, they often manage to uh, get to fairly uh, high places of power. And we see that in this story right here. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I found that really interesting that um, it's, it's kind of like a contrast where you know you have all these like record breakers like the first uh female doctor we talked about like mm-hmm. two months ago and then this one but it, it was still like a pretty male-dominated society and and it, it was also surprising that there, there really wasn't much about this person mm-hmm. so it, it's kind of like yeah i don't really know what the difference is like is it's definitely more of a um, like you said, like women have more pressure on them and it's more like a male dominated, it's been a more male dominated society, mm-hmm. but we've always had these like firsts that are faster than the U S where you, you think it would be the other way around. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, for example, like Zhang Jinglan, there was, there was no record. I don't know if mm-hmm. many people even remember there was this person. Mm. So, yeah. So even there, uh, where, you know, you, you, you have an example of, uh, a breakthrough success, uh, you know, the probably overemphasis on male achievement, you know, we see that again, even in that instance. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, we're going to wrap up that story right there so we can have time to get onto the others. Uh, but before we get to the next story, I, I hear some more music coming up behind us. Uh, so what are we going to be listening to to take us to story number two? Um, this song is Joan uh, Show. It's uh, Going to Catch Mudfish. Ah. So yeah, delicious mudfish. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of written as a kind of like a folk song back then, but I think over time it's been like a more of a popular children's song where this kid um, asks his older brother to bring him to catch some mudfish. Hmm. All right. Uh, and the rendition that we're playing right here is the KTV rendition. I'm 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 picking up on. Yeah. Yeah. It is. All right. So playing us to the second story, we've got Juani Cho uh, by Hoda Tian. And on to your second story for the week, this one titled Freedom of the Press, China Style. This is for the second week of September, between September 12th and September 18th. Uh, And we're talking about two reporters that visited China very shortly after the lifting of martial law in Taiwan in 1987. Uh, And they made that trip on September 14th. Yeah. So um, this um, article is about... um Two reporters, Independence Evening Post reporters Li Yongde and Xu Lu, and they were the first Taiwanese reporters to set foot in China, mm. and they kind of did it in a slightly illegal way because back then it wasn't really authorized yet. They were still trying to figure out like the details on how people who had relatives in China could mm-hmm. go visit them, and uh, so that was about to happen, mm-hmm. and the editor of this president and editor of this paper decided to well we'll send them we have we'll send them there to kind of pave the way and see what it's really like and 
So just um, bending the rules just a little bit uh, to get the scoop. Yeah, yeah. So they actually um, applied. To, they flew to Tokyo first, and then in Tokyo they kind of they got the China visa, and then they just went there mm. and without permission from the Taiwanese government. Who needs permission? No. Who needs permission? So, kind of the idea behind this whole trip, uh, and you bring this up in your article, is that of course. Uh, China was being covered by many "quote unquote" foreign journalists, uh, journalists working for you know Reuters, AP, whatever. Uh, but until this time, there was literally nobody from Taiwan uh, with a reporting credential in China. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't. So they they didn't want to just keep reading stuff from a foreign perspective. They because Taiwan's relationship with China mm-hmm. obviously is different from um, Like the U.S. and China, mm-hmm. so he kind of wanted to address that. And also back then, all people really knew about China was government propaganda. Like how, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, this propaganda is both sides. Like um, how the people in China were suffering under the rule of the evil communists, and mm. uh, life was horrible for them. And mm-hmm. uh, so that, that was like a lot of the. They kind of wanted to like uh, break this kind of propaganda and kind of mm-hmm. see what. Uh, understand and see what China really is like under mm-hmm. the communists. So that, that that was like kind of two of their goals mm-hmm. of doing this. Mm. And when they got there, what exactly did they find? I mean, did, did did they break those perceptions? Yeah, they did. They said um, they noticed that the standard of living was still you know behind Taiwan, but they also noticed that there were a lot of like reform attempts and. Um, You know the the Cultural Revolution and all that stuff was over, and people were um, actually not that unhappy mm. about. And it wasn't as bad as uh, you know, like the propaganda made it out to be. Mm. And um, they they did see that things were starting to change. And uh, but the interesting, also interesting thing was um, their trip was pretty uh, pretty monitored. Like mm-hmm. they had people follow follow them all around mm-hmm. and. Um, they couldn't like schedule interviews on their own. Like uh, the receptionist of the hotel would kind of like screen their phone calls and uh, make sure it was okay. And then uh, the their host had to accompany them to every interview and everywhere they go. And they 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 noticed like people following them around all the time. So mm. yeah, it was it was pretty monitored. So they kind of felt like they only got like a cursory look mm-hmm. at uh, at China. But, uh, it was a good beginning. Mm-hmm. So the very first glimpse uh, of of China by uh, real reporters, those once again uh, being Li Yongde and Shu Lu. Uh, but when they got back, these two reporters, they kind of got in trouble. Yeah, they did. They did for um, all their hard work for you know uh, being the intrepid reporters doing uh, the hard work of getting to the place, getting the story. They got punished for that. Yeah, they did because uh, they. They got back on September 27th, and yeah, the government banned the newspaper for sending any reporters anywhere for two years, and then Jeez. arrested the president um, and the two reporters for forgery of public documents because they were claiming they were only going to Japan. Ah, so uh, they were all acquitted mm-hmm. eventually. Like after a like the court case went on for like a year or so, but that kind of that was kind of like. The fact that they were acquitted—that was kind of like an indication that you know martial law was over, and mm-hmm. um, it was like a sign that things were starting to change. And mm-hmm. because if this was martial law, this would be like a really serious mm-hmm. issue. 
Um, so it kind of like signifies like the change, like the mm-hmm. change of times and the relationship with China kind of mm-hmm. starting to thaw. Mm. Right. And uh, just kind of getting back to the significance of this, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of interested by that idea that, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, reporters in China, but none of them were Taiwanese. Uh, and these Taiwanese reporters, you know, were bringing a very different perspective to their reporting work. So what do you think uh, that different perspective was? Uh, I, mean, I mean, would it, it mainly just be the fact that they had uh, all of these martial law era quote-unquote, propaganda, you know, martial law stereotypes about the mainland that they were responding to? Uh, I think that's a big part of it. And then uh, there were also, there was this, like, mystique about China. It was mm. like the motherland that mm-hmm. the they couldn't go back to for mm. a lot of the people who came with the nationalists. Mm. And That's interesting. I mean, that's not really a, a concept that we still have today. But I guess at that time where... Uh, you didn't have so many direct flights where you, you didn't have all this opening up. That was still, you know, a real barrier. Yeah, it was. And a lot of people still had relatives in China that mm-hmm. they could not visit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and even for the people who didn't come with the nationalists, like um, just the education system and um, just the general um, notion was like, yeah, like we – well, the KMT still claim that they ruled the entire China. So mm-hmm. – they continue to uh, assert that notion into probably during this time they still did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I went to school back then and mm-hmm. we learned that. That's what you remember from the textbooks. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we learned about China. So you would read about China in the textbooks and like when they said Wu Guo, like my country, that mm-hmm. would be China and mm-hmm. Taiwan was just part of it. Mm-hmm. So there's this like – motherland or like the rest of our country our country that nobody's ever been to Mm. and so i think that's part of the significance is like that where you're actually there and you're reporting about it Mm. and even though it was just a cursory look it's um yeah it's just the divide was very real at the time yeah it was really real at that time like nobody could go there and Mm -hmm. yet we knew so much about it because that's what we learned about, we learned mm. about like the Changjiang, Yangtze River and the mm. Yellow River instead of like the Danshui River. Right. Like when we were kids. Mm. So um, I think, yeah, like having someone actually go there and see this place was pretty, mm-hmm. was probably pretty groundbreaking or like mm-hmm. kind of impact, impacted a lot of people back then. Mm. All right. So we were talking about their freedom of the press, China style. We're going to round that out right there and go to our third song for the show today. What are we listening to here? We were listening to Long de Chuanzhen. Uh, so it's like the heir of the dragon. Mm. And this kind of ties into what we were just talking about. It really like, does, uh, yeah. Because uh, it, it, it sings about China mm-hmm. and how all people of Chinese ethnicity are the descendants of the dragon. Mm-hmm. And this was written in the time when yeah when you were supposed to see china as the motherland so regardless, 70s 80s yeah like mm-hmm. regardless of whether you actually came to the nationalists or if you've always been in taiwan mm. um you still you were supposed to see um china as the motherland so that kind of ties into what we were just talking about all right so once again this is long de tran ren uh by hoda jian to take us into the third story
right, and on to our third story for the month of September. This one titled, Seizing Two Titles from a Legend. Uh, this covering the week of September 19th to September 25th. Uh, and it brings us all the way back to September 19th of 1965. That was the day when uh, go- very young Go Master, Lean Hai Fung, uh, managed to win an impressive Go title from a, a Japanese master. Yeah, so uh, that was the day, um, yeah, it was a, one of the most prestigious uh, matches, um, Go tournaments in Japan. And um, so Go kind of started in China, but it flourished in Japan. And so um, back then, if you wanted to learn Go or become a Go master, you went to Japan to do that. And um, so this was a pretty intense battle. Like uh, it was a two-day it was a two-day battle, so mm-hmm. you did like the first day, and if you didn't, each person was allotted ten hours of total playing mm-hmm. time. Well, that included like thinking, mm-hmm. so there was this timer that would like kind of count down the minutes you spent like making your move, and it could mm-hmm. take up to hours for mm-hmm. someone to like make a move. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty intense like in a really calm kind of way Mm. and so here on this uh, 1965 game we have the 23 year old lean hai fung uh facing off against the 45 year old japanese go master sakato io yeah and uh sakato io before that he was uh the first one to have um two of the three prestigious uh Japanese Go titles, which mm-hmm. was the Meijin, and the other one was the Hoimbo. So this was the Meijin, and uh, yeah, Lin Hai Fong. He was relatively, he was a kind of Go prodigy in Taiwan, but he was mm-hmm. still like up and coming back then, mm-hmm. and nobody thought he could really win, and nobody even thought there could be a Meijin under the age of thirty. Mm. And um, yeah, he he defeated uh, Sakata and. Um, Sakata actually exhausted nine hours and fifty nine minutes of his playing time, mm. and uh, but Lin made history. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was this made uh, um, this made the headlines of all the Japanese newspapers. Mm. Like uh, so, this twenty three year old kid beats uh, beats the grandmaster. Uh, big news there. Yeah, yeah, and usually because uh, a lot of these uh, go tournaments are sponsored by newspapers mm. for uh, whatever reason I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> So the rival newspaper would not report on this newspaper's mm-hmm. tournament, but yeah. uh, this was a rare occurrence where this uh, Yomiuri um, newspaper, its biggest rival, actually ran a big profile on Ling Haifeng on the mm-hmm. first page, and so this was like a pretty big thing for Japan. Mm. Now let's uh, turn our focus a little bit more over to Ling Haifeng himself now. Playing a, a game like Go, that might sound like a pretty nerdy pursuit, but I guess we could say he was sort of the bad boy of Go. Uh, I mean, he uh, he came from a family where uh, a lot of his family members were also Go players, uh, but he he was something of a, of a delinquent among nerds. Yeah, I, I think would that be fair to say? Yeah, uh, you could say that. Like, uh, funny thing was his father and older brother were like huge Go enthusiasts, mm-hmm. so. He was kind of influenced by them, but they weren't very good. Mm. And but Lin was not like that. Lin didn't have that kind of like passion for the mm-hmm. game, but he was so good at it that yeah. So his father like kept pushing him. Like mm. he writes in this. Um, his father told like after 
he won like a big tournament in Taipei. His father was like, "Yeah, like sometimes I have to bribe him with money to like get him to practice." So, so he was great at the game, but he just wasn't. He didn't enjoy it that much. Yeah, it didn't seem like it. But yeah, but uh, he first came to fame when he like entered this uh, national go competition in Taipei at like. Nine years old and beat like someone three times his age mm. um, by like a huge margin. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the Central Daily News. Yeah, so uh, actually, even in Taiwan, the tournaments are sponsored by newspapers. Mm. But anyway, the Central Daily News <laughs> sponsored this thing, and they they had a big feature on Lin and. Yeah, so that's what first brought him to fame, and then like all these people came to challenge him, and he even mm. defeated the Minister of Education. Well, that's embarrassing. Yeah. How do you get respected by the kids in school after you get defeated by a, a little kid? Yeah, like a ten-year-old. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so he uh, he eventually goes on to Japan, uh, where he he gets uh, a go master who kind of takes him under his wing. Um, but he sort of he even in Japan, even though he's there specifically to study go, he kind of carries on his wanton ways. Yeah. So uh, it's said that. Um Yeah, first he was in Kyoto and Osaka, and he was like studying. His ch- uh, Japanese wasn't good enough, so he mm-hmm. was in a Chinese school. But then later he re- uh, moved to Tokyo, and uh, so he could be part of the Japan Go Association, which is the most prestigious one. But then um, he would just often like skip school and Tokyo is just too much fun. Yeah, and he would just like skip classes. He wouldn't go. He would stay out all night, and there was a lot of like behavioral problems. And uh, and he wasn't doing that great with his grades or with his goal progress. So actually, his family like took him back to Kyoto, and his he kind of like um, corrected his path there. <laughs> and, <laughs> Kyoto is the place where you can cool your heels and yeah. become a respectable young man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I was just in Kyoto. There's definitely plenty of temptations in Kyoto too. But mm-hmm. anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, so he goes on to to, to have quite an, an illustrious career, as you write in this article, um, and uh, he he gets uh, a his master who is in Japan but is uh, from China uh, works with him for a number of years, and even his assessment of the guy is this guy has a lot of talent, but he just doesn't really take things that seriously. Yeah, yeah. So this master Wu Qingyuan, um, even in this book he released in two thousand and three, that's when like Lin already like had this. Great career, like uh, broke all a lot of records, and um, but Wu still writes in the book that Lin could have done much more with his career, mm. and said that he wasn't as hardworking mm. um, as he was, mm-hmm. even though he Wu admits that Lin's talent was above his own. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Like it on paper, Lin has had like this impressive career, but. Could have been even more. Maybe it could have been even more. Although we should say that just last year he uh, broke another record. Yeah, he became the second Go player to reach fourteen uh, hundred wins last August. So he's continuing to rack up these uh, accolades. But mm. I guess his teacher still thinks he could have done more. Mm. All right. So Lin Haifeng, uh, even in twenty fifteen, racking up awards. Uh, if it's possible to be a bad boy of Go, I guess he would be the bad boy of Go. Now maybe you would have more of a feel for this than I do. Uh, I I definitely don't see too many people uh, whipping out the Go set in Taiwan. Is this is is today? Is this a more popular game here? Probably not. I think it's mm-hmm. not as popular as like Shangqi or mm-hmm. like uh, 
utter just probably because of the com- like how complex the game is it's it's mm. like it's really more of an abstract strategy game instead of you know like this piece goes there like this mm-hmm. is all the same pieces and then you have to figure out different things to do with it mm-hmm. and uh i don't know like my father plays it every i think once once a month with his friend but uh, mm-hmm. that's about it that's about it that i personally have seen anybody play go and I mean, I tried when I was little, and mm. it didn't really go anywhere. Ah, so uh, unfortunately, Lin Haifeng did not manage to popularize the game uh, here in Taiwan, I guess. All right, so uh, we're going to round that one out right there and move to our final song to take us into our final story. And what is that final song? This song is also a Hou De Jin hit. It's called Gui Chu Lai Xi. All right, so Gui Chu Lai Xi to take us into our final story. All right, and uh, we go now to our final story for the month of September, your final story, uh, which actually just came out yesterday. Uh, This one covering uh, this week all the way up to October 2nd, uh, and we're going to be talking about Peter Huang. Uh, And in talking about Peter Huang, we are very much leaving the genteel world of Go games, tabletop board games, uh, grand masters and, you know, strategy and all that, uh, and into the much less genteel world of attempted assassination. Uh, So the calendar tie-in right here is uh, Peter Huang's birthday is actually this Sunday on October 2nd, uh, all the way back in 1937. Tell us a little bit about Peter Huang. So Peter Huang's an interesting figure because he um, he tried to kill Zhang Jingguo, who mm. was the son of the president mm, at the time. At the time, and later he became because of the shift in political climate, he actually turned into like this human rights champion, and he even was like the human rights advisor for Chen Shui-bian, like the then president mm. at one point. And he was even like honored by his um, National Zhengzhi University as like an outstanding alumnus mm. for his work in human rights. So, so this assassination attempt was in 1970. So basically, uh, in the course of 30 years, he goes from the attempted assassin of the son of a president to an advisor to a president of Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Kind of, yeah, so let's just go uh, into how it starts. So he uh, goes to study abroad. He studies sociology at the University of Pittsburgh in Mm -hmm. 1964. And back then in the U.S., there was a lot going on. There was the civil rights, um, there was the women's rights movement, Vietnam War protests. Mm. um, So he actually was, he joined all of that. He was like active and um, he, he was actually like, active, like anti-Vietnam War, like protester. Mm. And so that's where he compares uh, that um, to Taiwan. Taiwan was like, um, he calls it, like sarcastically calls it like super stable 
country under the one-party dictatorship. Right. It's 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 less messy than you know having uh, presidential elections every four years. It's pretty simple. You know who's going to be the face of uh, the presidency in any given year. Right. Right. And then like it was Chiang Kai-shek then, and everybody knew that Jiang Jingguo, his son, mm-hmm. would secede him. So. Mm-hmm. So he called that like, yeah, super stable compared mm-hmm. to what was going on in the States. Like people right. were like angry and there was mm-hmm. a lot of social change. So he was kind of awakened by that. And then there were – and then he met these people who were uh, pro-Taiwanese independence. Mm-hmm. So that kind of – started his uh, another awakening about his home country. Right. So he uh, gets involved with these sorts of groups and uh, they get radical pretty fast uh, and they begin to discuss the possibility of uh, assassinating Zhang Jingguo, who uh, is making trips to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So actually, it's kind of surprising how this quickly is just turned into like, oh, yeah, let's kill this guy. And then... Mm-hmm. Uh, And then they actually carry through with it, and mm-hmm. it's his brother-in-law and his sister and this other guy that are like actually plotting this whole thing. And mm-hmm. he was like, he was the only one without uh, family, like a wife and children. So he was like, "I'll do it." Mm. And yeah, so it actually just, he got pretty close. Yeah, he got pretty close. And then this happens, and they there was talk about um, Zhang Jingguo visiting the U.S. in 1970. Mm-hmm. So. Um, They actually go to the airport and observe him and then follow him to the hotel. And then three days later, he actually, uh, as Zhang Jingguo is about to enter his hotel, he fires a shot. He gets really close and fires Mm -hmm. a shot. And Mm. he insists on doing this like really close and up close and personal to really make a statement. So Mm. he could have used a sniper rifle or they could have hired like someone else to do it. But Mm. he wanted... A regular Taiwanese person to do it. So it was. He wanted the world to know basically that this is a Taiwanese person who is rejecting this regime. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a political statement in, in, in addition to trying to like an assassination. But mm-hmm. he failed. A policeman caught him at the last minute and knocked his arm, and the bullet missed. And then he fired another shot, and Zhang Jingguo had already entered the building. Mm. So uh, a very near miss right there. Uh, now, it's kind of interesting the way that these guys thought about uh, this assassination attempt because they didn't even think that, you know, this one bullet, this one man would necessarily take down the KMT. But it was more, uh, like you said, it was more about sending the signal uh, that native Taiwanese uh, rejected this regime. Yeah, yeah, because uh, back then, uh, I think the U.S. was still allied with Taiwan, so mm-hmm. the U.S., Um, and he, he talks about this. He's like, the U.S. Uh, always calls for, like, democracy and freedom, but they support all these, like, dictatorships around the world, and Taiwan's one of them. Mm-hmm. And um, he compares that to kind of uh, – he does not think that the – if Jiang Jing, the getting rid of Jiang Jingguo would, like, destroy the KMT. But mm-hmm. uh, he said there would be power struggles that would disturb – Wanted some breathing space and maybe some possible opening up some possibilities for change. And he wanted to send a message to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let's m- move to part two of this story in which Peter Huang basically, I mean, he gets arrested in the United States. He, he, he flees his bail. He's on the run for a very long time. Eventually, he makes it back to Taiwan years and years later, and he essentially uh, has uh, outlasted the statute of limitations, uh, and he just gets a slap on the wrist. Yeah, yeah. So in 1996, he returns to Taiwan and 
Um, yeah, by that time, they couldn't really do anything about what he did. Mm-hmm. And, but they did put him in jail for four months for uh, illegally entering the country because mm. he kind of secretly snuck back. So mm-hmm. that's all he got. And then he's been um, act like a human rights activist since he's served as director for Taiwan Association of Human Rights. Uh, he led like Amnesty International mm. and also served on the Peacetime Foundation for Taiwan. And um, yeah, he was even appointed the National Policy Advisor on Human Rights for Chen Shui-bian, like I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. And I think the big outrage came when he was honored by his uh, like Zhengzhou University where he studied journalism as like an outstanding alumni. And right. a lot of people were like, no, like a crime is a crime. Mm-hmm. Nothing can justify trying to kill someone even though it's for... It might be um, for, for, what, mm-hmm. for what he thought was a good cause, but mm-hmm. he still tried to kill someone. Right. But uh, I think Zhengzhou University was, saw him as this like, important uh, human rights fighter and um, honored him for like not, – not for trying to kill Zhang Jingguo, but like kind of all the human rights work he's done in the past like mm-hmm. 20 years since he's been back in Taiwan. So mm-hmm. that, that, that was a lot of controversy and it's, it's interesting to see how – the fortunes of the Jiang family and mm-hmm. how they're perceived change drastically and then this guy who tried to kill them mm-hmm. and they kind of just switch places switch places almost so mm-hmm. it's interesting how like just 30 years and the change in political climate could change mm-hmm. someone's reputation and fortune that much Right, and that is just about going to do it for our four stories for the month of September. Uh, now, kind of interesting to me that uh, this month you really chose uh, stories that focused on individuals uh, that were kind of on a journey. I, I mean, in the first one, we have the first female grand justice. That's uh, one individual with a very uh, interesting life story. Uh, then we have, I guess, two individuals who were the first uh, to report from China uh, to Taiwan. Uh, then we have Go Master, uh, and then Peter Huang, uh, the, the the attempted assassin. So, uh, was it kind of interesting to you to look at uh, some of these individual figures from Taiwan history? Is, is is that a kind of history that you find particularly engaging? Um, yeah, I do. Um, like, yeah, this month has just happened to all be about like milestones, but that's. Mm-hmm. Usually there's an interesting story behind. Mm. Um, if you're the first to something, there's got to be a, a reason. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I like just digging into like what drives them and what made them mm-hmm. do uh, what they did. And it was kind of uh, unfortunate that I couldn't find that much on the female uh, Grand Justice, Zhang mm-hmm. Jinglan, or anything. Because um, a lot of the other things, like Ling Hai Feng, I found some stuff I, I, that he wrote and also for uh, Peter Huang I drew from like this article autobiographical article that he wrote and mm-hmm. um, yeah but for Zhang Jinglan I had to rely on other people's sources mm. so I kind of I like looking at like their own inspiration and mm. like what what drove them to take this journey to become the first like mm-hmm. what, what were their motivations behind it and mm. and how it ties into like the bigger picture like the mm-hmm. political and then the political climate the social 
like the、um, two reporters one that was at a time where martial law had just ended, and through their story, we can look at how like the social changes and political changes, and、um, just kind of how society was back then. And、mm. all right, so those are four stories from Taiwan's history from the month of September. Uh, and we were going to round it out there. We were, of course, talking to Han Chung, who is a features writer over at the Taipei Times.、Uh, his column, Taiwan in Time, comes out every Sunday. You can find it right there. Han Chung, thank you so much for joining us again, and we'll talk to you again next month. All right, see you next month. Thanks for listening to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. Taiwan Talk broadcasts on ICRT FM 100 every Monday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. right after the top of the hour newscasts. You can also find extended versions of those interviews online, just like the one you just heard, at the ICRT website, on iTunes, and pretty much anywhere where you can find fine podcasts.、Uh, just to recap, we were listening today to the musical stylings of Taiwanese writer Ho Da Jian. So, hope you enjoyed that. Check out the ICRT blog、uh, for a little blog post we're going to put together about today's episode.、Uh, it's going to have links to all of Han's articles for the month of September,、uh, so you can find those articles real easy just by heading on over there. That is it for the show today. So for ICRT and Taiwan Talk, I'm Keith Mancone. See you next time. <laughs>